Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Nipun Mehta, founder of servicebase.org and host Michael Lerner. Nipun Mehta, welcome back to the new school. I'm happy to be here. Nipun, we've been friends for a long time, um, and uh, you have such an interesting life story that I want to begin simply by reading from uh, your About Me uh, space on the, on the web. Nipun Mehta is the founder of Service Space, an incubator of projects that works at the intersection of volunteerism, technology, and the gift economy. What started as an experiment with four friends in the Silicon Valley has now grown to a global ecosystem of over 500,000 members that has delivered millions of dollars in service for free. Nippon has received many awards, including the Jefferson Award for Public Service, Wavy Gravy's Humanitarian Award, and the Dalai Lama's Unsung Hero of Compassion. In 2015, President Barack Obama appointed him to a Council on Poverty and Inequality. Nipun is routinely invited to share his message of giftivism to wide-ranging audiences from inner-city youths to academics to international dignitaries. His speech at the University of Pennsylvania in May 2012, the commencement, was read by millions. He serves on the advisory board of the Seva Foundation, the Dalai Lama Foundation, and Greater Good Science Center. Nippon's high school goal was to be either a tennis pro or a Himalayan yogi. <laughs> Instead, by the third year of his computer science and philosophy degree at UC Berkeley, he started his software career at Sun Microsystems. Dissatisfied by the dot-com greed of the late 90s, Nippon went to a homeless shelter with three friends to give with absolutely no strings attached. They ended up creating a website, also an organization named Service Space. Over the years, they have built thousands of websites for nonprofits, but also started incubating a diverse set of projects that include online portals Daily Good and KarmaTube, offline movements like Smile Cards, a pay-it-forward rickshaw in India, and Karma Kitchen restaurants in three cities across the U.S. In 2001, at the age of 25, Nippon quit his job to become a full-time volunteer. He didn't have a plan of survival beyond six months, but so far, so good. <laughs> in January 2005, Nupin and Guri, his wife of six months, put everything aside to embark on an open-ended, unscripted walking pilgrimage in India to use our hands to do random acts of kindness, our heads to profile inspiring people, and our hearts to cultivate truth. Living on a dollar a day, eating whatever food was offered, sleeping wherever a flat surface was found, the couple walked a thousand kilometers before ending up at a retreat center where they meditated for three months. Today, both Nippon and Guri live in Berkeley and stay rooted in practice of small acts of service. The journey continues. Nippon's mission statement in life now reads, quote, bring smiles in the world and stillness in my heart. 
I wanted to start by reading that, Nippon, because we could have taken the whole time we have together unraveling that part yeah. of the journey. But I wanted to ask just at the start, what is uppermost for you today and in your mind right now? Um, probably. I, I just did a 30-day meditation retreat. And so I think uh, for me, what's really present right now is is our addiction to our identity um, and the things that sort of the mountains uh, of conditions that create our ego um, and how can we deconstruct that um, so that we're, because we're othering at so many levels because when there's an ego, when there's a self, there is an other. And we do that internally and then we do that societally at, at, very, uh, at all levels, you know, from language all the way up to countries. Um, and it's embedded in the systems that we create. Uh, so for me, what's present is how, what is the role of inner transformation in the relationships we create and in the systems that we design? Um, that's very present for me because I've just spent 30 days doing nothing, so mm. to speak. Um, but really, you know, starting to deconstruct. So yeah, I, I think about that a lot. And I'm also thinking a lot about compassion in the presence of great suffering. Um, that there is, you know, they, I, I, I don't know if we can ever get rid of suffering. Uh, but I think a compassionate heart uh, is about not shriveling up in the presence of suffering. How do you stay big-hearted uh, while there is suffering around you uh, is a question that I hold for myself internally because there's so much suffering inside. There's so many unresolved things going on. And how, how do you bring that into the world as well? Right? That how do you not bypass the suffering and say there's no suffering? There is suffering. There is a lot of pain, um, but how do you hold it with a big heart without trying to, you know, that impulse to try to sort it out or to solve it or to just kind of swipe it under the rug? Um, how do you stay in a relationship with it uh, that is compassionate? So to me, that's also a direct result from my meditation. So did I hear you say in that that you also experience internal suffering yourself. Yeah, I mean this... So, you've spent a lot of time in contemplative practice. Yeah. And so I'm always grateful when someone who's spent a lot of time in contemplative practice acknowledges that they still suffer. <laughs> I can definitely <laughs> attest to the suffering. I mean, wh what is what is ego? It's this completely confused uh, identification, uh, and and you can't stop that. You you want to you intellectually understand. I intellectually understand it. I believe it. I have faith in that. Yeah, there is no self at the end of the day. But you know, in every moment, you're all the cells of your body are just like craving and clinging and all the thoughts you have are just all moving in this in this direction and to even put 
a break on it, you know? And, and so I think for me, what gives me humility, <laughs> it's meditation is an incredibly humbling process for me because I realize I used to think, I think I grew up thinking that the more, if you want to do something, put effort into it. And if you don't get there, then put more effort into it. You know, this is how I played tennis back in the days. But I think this idea of realizing that there are actually many causes to every condition and that your effort may be a part of the cause, but there are so many other causes which you don't control. And so how much of what you're experiencing is a result of your doing and how much of it is grace? Uh, which is unexplained merit, which is unexplained sort of if causes that are leading to an effect you're experiencing. And that's a very humbling, because initially I think I would have said in my early, in my teens, I probably would have said that, oh, hey, you know, 10% unexplained, 90% is who I, you know, what I put into it. And I just need to try harder. Um, you know, I, I think realistically I'm probably at you know, 1090 now, but I, I, my head wants to say it feels almost like a hundred, you know, that really are, you know, how much is our effort doing the things that we want to do? And you see this on the cushion readily. I see it on the cushion all the time. You're not able to do what you want to do just because you want to do it. And so you're like moment after moment after moment. And just in the simplest thing, right? Not even talking about esoteric things or enlightenment, just watch your breath until I tell you to stop. It, you ought to, you know, you would think you would be able to do it. And I can't, you know, how long can you do it? You know, one minute, five minutes, 10 minutes, one hour, two hours. But like at some point it should just be, you know, if, if it was just driven by you, uh, you ought to be able to control it a lot more. And maybe there are stages where you can, but for me, it's just very humbling. Well, I'm just so grateful to hear you say that because I, I imagine that there are many people out there who are looking at you and looking at what you've done and who you are as uh, we described simply in going over your biographical note would think to themselves, I'm just making this up, but Nipun is like Gandhi. He's enlightened and he is beyond suffering. And certainly many spiritual teachers at least project whether it's true or not, but they project an image yeah. that they are enlightened and that they are beyond suffering. Yeah. So to me, um, I'm always grateful when someone I admire who's had a lot of hours on the cushion and um, who has lived uh, a life of uh, dedication the way you have, uh, says, you know what, here I am, what, 47 or so? What, how old? 43. 43. Yeah. Here I am, 43 years old. I've done what I've done. I just came out of a meditation retreat. It's humbling. And yes, uh, I still suffer. Yeah. yeah. Because I still suffer. Oh, I, but. <laughs> <laughs> and life yeah. has a great way of reminding you. But yeah. I think you do become better at resiliency yeah. that you see is that all suffering does arise and pass. And yeah. so you are much more equanimous as mm -hmm. things uh, sort of come your way. But definitely, like my brother at 37 was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer. Mm -hmm. And for about a month, uh, we thought that he was going to pass away. And, you know, I remember going and I was I was fairly resilient with that. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, my mom had a harder time. My dad somewhere in between. Everyone had their own equation. 
And I remember one point I just happened to go in the bathroom and I'm like, pick up a toothbrush, I'm washing mm -hmm. my, you know, I'm brushing my teeth. And all of a sudden I realized, oh, this is Viral's bathroom and I don't think he's ever going to be here. I, or there's a chance that he may not be here. And I just started weeping. Mm. Um, and if I think about it rationally, I says, what am I weeping for? Because yes, 37 is tough to pass away. But even if it was 80, it's going to be tough. So intellectually, I understand that things change and that I shouldn't attach. But I mean, my gosh, there's so many parts mm -hmm. of me that are clinging to so much. Mm -hmm. And so you operate. So I actually approach the world and all my service work not with an idea of trying to change the world, because I, I'm not really even sure I know what the world is. Um, I have a perception of it, um, but I'm not so sure that's the perfect perception of it. Uh, and so then you say, how can you serve? And I'm not so sure that I can. Uh, so I, for me, a service is an expression uh, uh, for me to work on myself, for my own inner transformation. So I'm grateful the the experience like you mm -hmm. i also experience gratitude all the time right because of, like a monkey sees a fish in the stream and mm -hmm. says oh the fish is struggling let me go bring it to you know let me save it mm -hmm. and brings it to the tree and the fish dies mm -hmm. and i think we do that all the time mm -hmm. uh in our own arrogance in our own idea of knowing and being so certain that this is right um and and so for me all my inner practice tells me that I've got a long ways to go and that any moment where I have an opportunity to serve is to shift out of the me into the we. And I'm actually grateful. If a fish comes and says, will you feed me this kind of, I'm like, oh, thank you. Because I'm not projecting and bringing the fish up on the tree. I'm actually reaching out and offering. And, and I feel grateful that I have a chance to serve and in through that act of service to connect and through that connection to quiet my mind and to see things a bit more clearly. Mm. Um, so I actually have a very inside out view and this is not like a, this is how I feel all the time. Mm. Uh, I, not not 100% of the time, mm. but by and large, when I'm in my wits, uh, this is how I tend to view the world around me. So uh, what can you describe in some way this is a hard question, but I'm going to ask it. The evolution of consciousness that you experienced through your conscious life, where, as you remember it, when you were young, you were, and how it has moved to where you find consciousness now? Uh, I know that's a tough question, but... It's a big question. Yeah. Um... For example, uh, we could start anywhere, but, uh, well, let me start with a very specific question. Tell me about where you were born and into what family. Um, I, was, I was born in the western region of India, uh, in Gujarat. Mm -hmm. I grew up there. My family immigrated. Uh, we, we're, you know, an average middle-class-ish family. Uh, we immigrated to the U.S., all four of us, my brother and I and my parents. Um, we immigrated to the uh, to Silicon Valley um, in 87. I was 13. You were 13. I was 13. 
Did your father have a job in Silicon Valley? You know, the way, the way these things work, uh, you're allowed to come with, uh, I think it was $20 mm -hmm. uh, per person, um, mm -hmm. and that's it. Um, and so you have absolutely no security, and you know, mm -hmm. there's all kinds of things uh, that you have to deal with. That's the immigrant experience. Um, and they, you know, my dad did get a job. He had to do so many other things before he found a stable job. Mm -hmm. uh, my mom also uh, worked at the bank. My dad's an engineer. And I, I, my, my one of two jobs that I had was I, I wanted to contribute. And so in seventh grade, I saw a little stall outside and it was for the San Jose Mercury News, you know, back in the days of newspapers. Mm -hmm. And they said, we are looking for paper boys. And, mm -hmm. you know, so I had a paper route and, um, and, I, used to, I did that diligently for many years, and I would just contribute wh whatever I made to my parents. And mm -hmm. my parents, of course, were looking to contribute to me, and so they were like, they stacked it away in a bank account that they never took, took you know, they never withdrew from that. Uh, but it was a, that kind of generosity that I, they didn't ask me to do anything, but I felt like I wanted to contribute, and uh, they felt like they wanted to contribute. And there's this virtuous cycle that has continued since. Um, so I feel mm -hmm. very grateful uh, for the parents that I had. Um, but yeah, I, w I went through that whole whole experience. And I think to your bigger question of, you know, how, if I look at the arc of consciousness mm -hmm. uh, and the shifts in my consciousness, I, I, I think I was always a seeker for mm -hmm. as long as I can remember. What I, is your first memory of being a seeker? I, I think I was scared that people die. Hmm. And I don't know how old I was, but I remember through my youth, I would just look and say, oh, I really appreciate this. I love this. And then to realize that it's going to go away. And I was like, oh, you know, that's just, I was afraid of it. I, I, I didn't know how I would live without the security around me. And that question always was very present for me. And I would always read a lot of spiritual scriptures. Even in college, I used to, when I went to UC Berkeley, and they have, like, the most amazing uh, books, uh, like treasure gems that in, like, the corners that probably nobody looks at, but they have, but they have a great collection. And I remember I would just, like, when I want to take a break from all the engineering cramming that you have to do, and I, I would go to these sections, and I would pick up these random spiritual books uh, and that would be, to me, just so nourishing and so refreshing. So uh, already in college, you found nourishment in the spiritual life? Oh, well, well before that. When do you begin, remember beginning to find nourishment in spiritual life? Oh, I, 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 I mean, I think all my memories are around that kind of a seeking, to be honest. Uh, even when I was way, really young in our school, uh, they would have these sort of sacred events and honoring certain, you know, they'd had different activities. So whenever it was spiritual, like all my classmates would always choose me to kind of anchor that part. Really? And Was this a public school or a private school? It, it was a private school, but uh, in the Indian context, private means something uh, a little bit different than what a private school here would be. Right, so, so this was in India. This was in India. Okay. Were your parents Hindu? My, my parents were Hindu, yeah. Right. Uh, so even in early life, your classmates would choose you to anchor the spiritual sign. Yeah, yeah. Did your parents recognize this about you? 
They, they, they partly did because my brother was like that too. Uh-huh. That at the age of, uh, I think even at the age of three, he always wanted to shave his head and leave home. And they didn't know what to do with it. And so they, I, I remember at one point, and we were both like this, we had this incredible bond. And uh, at some point they took him to see one of the wise, you know, there's always like wise men around. And so you go and like, what's wrong with my son? And they said, oh, there's nothing wrong with him. You should be fortunate that he's chosen to take birth in your family. Um, did they believe in rebirth, your parents? My parents did. That's part of the Hindu upbringing. Yes, of course. Yeah. Do you believe still in rebirth? I, you know, I'm, I'm unclear if we're ever even born. Mm. And so it depends on your framework. Mm-hmm. So if you feel that you're born and mm-hmm. that you die, um, then I think there will be a propensity to continue that in some way, shape, or form, maybe not in a physical form, but I think that process of continuity is there. But I, you know, I, I'm, I'm unclear uh, on... What is your experience of being unclear whether you're ever born? What, <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, well... I'm not sure how to translate that into words, to be honest. But is it an experience of, is this an experience of sustained consciousness that you have or something that you glimpse from time to time or something that is with you as a cognition that you sometimes experience? How do you hold that sense? without getting too metaphysical. We can get metaphysical. We, oh, are we allowed to get oh, metaphysical absolutely. here? Oh, I, okay, all right. Yeah, we can get as <laughs> metaphysical as you like. So I, I wouldn't bet an eye, uh, and I, I, you know, I always, I do try to keep it grounded uh, for my own self also, because mm-hmm. I think there's experiences of dense matter and mm-hmm. then subtle matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't think subtle matter is any better. And I think you can mm-hmm. keep on looping right. in those kinds of things and create hierarchies. And I mm-hmm. think that's part of the problem. Mm-hmm. And this is where the ego is really vicious. Uh, so for me, I, I'm not fascinated by these experiences. But like, even if you were to... if so, I've just met amazing people... Who can who have just shattered my mind, mm-hmm. and at the time when I experience it, you experience these these different things, and you say, "How, what?" And you realize that the, your frame of reference was so limited. So, for example, the first time back in my teen years, um, we we were on a, on a plane ride from. Uh, from, no, we were going from here, from San Francisco to India, on the way in Japan. There's a layover. And this guy comes and sits next to my brother and I. Um, and he just looks at us and he's staring at us. And I, you know, I'm kind of, so it's like, you know, three, three seats and three seats, right? So me and my brother were here and my parents were both behind us and he happened to get a seat right next to us and he's this really compassionate looking guy, but he's about to put his you know, musical instrument up in, in the baggage area and he looks at us and he's just like staring. 
and like for a good 30 seconds and I didn't know how to respond like what do you, you know and I'm like you're as a kid you're anyways insecure about so many things so I'm like okay with it what am I doing wrong and he's just had this beaming smile and I said you know can I help you and he says oh no no it's okay and he puts his instrument and he sits down and he just knew everything about our lives and I'm like, what? You know, here, I, I used to be science kind of a, you know, a guy like, like that found a lot of, uh, I, I felt like I, I believed in the world the way it is. Like it's, you know, and he just kind of shattered a whole lot of things just in that eight hour plane ride. And he said it was all meant to be. And What and, did he tell you about yourself? Oh, uh, he, he, he told me a lot of things. He, he knew a lot about our lives. Uh, and he, I think what I really zoom in on is the principles, though, because he said that these, these tendencies will probably lead to this kind of a future. And I was like, oh. What kind of future? Uh, <laughs> he... He, uh, let's see, I, uh, I, I try not to focus on those kinds of things. I understand you yeah. because you're trying not to let the ego carry us away. <laughs> yes. But if you could set aside your ego concern that the ego carry you away <laughs> and just let us know what he said, that would be he, he, a he, great kindness. He, he said various things. Uh, he predicted various things. Uh, some of them that would be challenges uh, and and at the end of it, and he was very flattering um, mm -hmm. to what he also saw and at the mm -hmm. end of it he says, but no, anyone who tells you that this is a straight line into the future doesn't know what they're talking about. I don't believe them. These are just the tendencies. These are just the causes that are in effect and they're likely to lead to this. Was he Japanese? He was Japanese. Mm. And I never, we, we tried to get in touch, we never could. And the most amazing thing, 20 years later, I'm in Japan. This is now just a few years ago for the first time. I Only time I'd been in Japan is uh, on a layover. And for the first time I uh, was there, my friend says, do you know anybody in Japan? I said, not really, but I did meet this one guy on a plane 20 years ago. And I, I kind of ended up describing it, but like I had, we had no real contact and I had no real information. She also is a really remarkably intuitive person. She happens to be at a movie screening in the second row. She sees a person in the front row and she goes up to him and she says, are you Shin? And, and he was, and she says, do you remember you sat next to two brothers on a plane in India? They were, you know, they were young. And he says, I absolutely do. And he says, the elder, she says, the elder one is coming to Japan next week. He would love to see you. And so I met him again. And, you know, he, it, it, in a way, I, I just had so much gratitude for him because he completely shattered my mind. He, he was able to see, he was able to see even on the plane, 
right? Like he's able to see through people and see just a whole lot more data from my computer science world. And so I would look and he would say, oh, you have this kind of aura and you have this kind of aura. And I'd be like, you know, as a kid, I'm like, do I have a bigger aura than this guy? You know. And there was a monk on the plane of all things. He's like, what about that guy? You know, and, and he would tell us all these things. And I remember for the longest time, I would go out into the fields and I would be like, it just felt like a superpower, you know, and I wanted to get the superpower. And at that time, you don't understand that this want of a superpower is also just propagating the ego at a subtle level. Why do you want power at all? But at that time, I was like, oh, I was doing all these things, you know, to try to understand what was going on, because he said that I had access to that information as well. And I, I just need to try, try a little bit and it would be right there for my take. And so I would do all these things. And it became a big trap for me, actually, in, in my journey. Uh, but that led me to, uh, to my understanding of, of consciousness and, and of service as a, as a pathway uh, to deepening my own understanding uh, and experience of our interconnection. But I felt so grateful. So when I'm in Japan, I'm seeing him. And I just, you know, he's, he's this old, sweet man in his 80s. And I was just like, just in tears, expressing my gratitude to him. And he was in tears, you know, and, and he says, he said that he had never forgotten us. And I said, I mean, clearly me and my brother had never, can't, you can't forget these kinds of things, you know, because they're so formative and it was all accidental. But he also quote accidental. Yeah, clearly not. But um, so just meeting, and this would just this has just happened to us. uh, How old were you then? I was, I think, eighteen or nineteen. Eighteen or nineteen. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Nipun Mehta and host Michael Lerner. So you came to the United States when you were eleven. Thirteen. Thirteen. Yeah. And so those early experiences with your classmates in the Indian school, they would give you. So what was it like? Did you speak English when you came to the United States? Yeah, I did. I was always, we, we were taught English from. So you, know, you were fluent in English? I was fluent in English. What kind of school did you find yourself in when you came to the United States? A, a public middle public school. school, yeah. And what was the experience like of entering a public middle school? Uh, <laughs> In seventh grade. In seventh grade. Do not try at home if you have a choice. Right, right. Uh, that's the toughest time. I, right. My brother was in fourth grade, uh, which is a little bit better to assimilate. Seventh grade, mm-hmm. probably the worst time. Um, what was it like? It was, I mean, it was difficult mm-hmm. uh, because people would, you don't fit in. I had a different accent. I had different, you know, I remember I had these shoes that I got from India. I was like, okay, I'm going to America. I'm going to get these shoes. And I convinced my parents to get, because they were really cool shoes. And here, like you would look at those shoes and they just are like, you know, they were, com- they were completely, they were not fitting. And so then everyone's kind of looking at you as the oddball. And, and then there's all kinds of bullying going on uh, in, in those times. And I was never, I, I never had, it wasn't in me to be, uh, violent, uh, physically at least. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I'm sure subtly we're all violent so long mm-hmm. as we have the ego. Um, but I didn't, I, you know, and, and I, you just have to deal with all these things. How uh, did you deal with it? Um, I, I'm not 
sure. I, mm-hmm. I think I, I, where did I find my resilience at, in a time mm-hmm. like that? Mm-hmm. I would say, I, I don't know if I consciously looked for resilience because you're mm-hmm. just trying to get by. Um, and well, how so, did you get by? I, you know, I probably, I, and I, I don't have a conscious memory of mm-hmm. having these thoughts of, okay, let me endure mm-hmm. this and what's the best way I can endure this. But I think uh, I, I found refuge in spirituality. I would always read spiritual things, even at that age. Yes. Um, that was always uh, aspirational. I always had uh, good friends. And even early on, when I didn't have mm-hmm. friends here, I still stayed connected to friends in India, mm. and so I, I would write. We would write physical mm. letters. Mm. Uh, they would send me notes from like these spiritual assemblies that we would have mm. uh, when I was there. And it was a beautiful time, um, and I played tennis, and and that became that probably was a refuge for me. A way as well. through. Yeah. And, and I, I used to, we couldn't afford to anything. I had a wooden racket and mm-hmm. you really can't go too far with it. Couldn't even go to the court. But, you know, I'd be, I'd be there like I'd just swing my rackets and like for a long time because thinking that if I get the strokes down right, then when I'm on the court, I can make the best use of my one hour. Um, and, you know, I had my uncle gave me an aluminum racket uh, mm-hmm. for one of my birthdays. And I remember being so happy about it. And I played my first tournament with an aluminum racket. And like, I just, you know, it's like now I look at it because I went on to play uh, pretty, you know, very competitive, high level tennis. Mm-hmm. But now I look at it, I'm like, you know, I, I was the only guy with an aluminum racket. The first guy I played in the first round had like everything with a P for Prince, you know, which was the brand and identity, Prince socks. And, and he comes in with multiple rackets and, and then at some point he starts cheating and, and it's a late night match. I don't even know how to handle that, you know. And there's my dad and there's, you know, I, the support that I feel. And my grandma had heard that I was going to play a tournament. And so she had given me these rice cubes that she puts in her uh, prayers. So it's like a whole different world. You know, you're like, you look back, I look back. I haven't thought about this in a long time. Uh, you look back and you're just like... Wow, like, you know, like I'm eating, I mean, sugar is a terrible idea. <laughs> like, you don't want a sugar high because that's going to give you a sugar crash. But at that time, you don't know, you know, that you can't play with an aluminum racket. You, you don't, you know, you need to do this if somebody starts hooking you, all these sorts of things. And so for me, uh, I, I bet I found a lot of resilience um, through, through that. Uh, and I also had the company of really... Um, I, you know, it's weird, but I would have these friends that would come and protect me. Just, friends, metaphysical friends no, or physical friends? Uh, well, uh, yeah. <laughs> I will stay physical here, mm-hmm. but yeah, I would have these physical friends mm-hmm. that would come uh, and, and protect me. And, and I would sometimes have, you know, I was also very protective of my brother. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember a bunch of people were being very racist at one point, we were on the courts and they were like spitting all these wrong things, you know, that they really shouldn't be doing. And this was the only violent moment that I can remember mm-hmm. in my life. Um, mm-hmm. And, it, you know, they're engaging with him in an inappropriate way. And mm-hmm. there are three of them and they're bigger and they're clearly the, they're getting a lot out of doing mm-hmm. something in, in this way. And I, 
I didn't know how to respond, but I had this thing of protecting my brother. And um, I and this one guy who's big, he's overweight slightly. And I said, you know, I think you should cut it out. And mm -hmm. he kind of didn't take me seriously. And they kept doing whatever they were doing. And I just lifted him up. Mm -hmm. And I have no idea how I found the strength, mm -hmm. but I just lifted him up. I was a little bit taller than him. And I said, I think you should cut it out. Mm. And I just dropped him on the ground. Mm. And, and I think he was so shocked that I could do that. Mm -hmm. And it was like this surge of energy. Um, and I, and he left, you know, I didn't really harm him in any way. But it was a very, it was like, okay, you need to stop this. So it was like a sort of coming from that strength. But that strength was something unusual. Um, and I would later go on to experience that in so many other ways. But, uh, you know, the, so that I, I, I think there was always a spiritual undertone uh, to all these experiences, whether I'm meeting, you know, whether I'm like doing, engaging with my young friends in this way or finding resilience in a bullying moment through the surge of energy, uh, or meeting a man in, on a plane in Japan that can see all kinds of things around me, through me, inside me, outside me, and how everything's interacting, to then meeting him again and realizing that maybe all these things aren't just accidents. Um, so I think there's probably an arc, and I don't know if I'm smart enough to figure out what the logic of that arc is or how it neatly fits into a, uh, into a thing. But I, I really feel that 90% that I think I'm here for this conversation, but it's for me, the jury's out. Like I have no idea. And where I'm at right now, I don't need to know. I, I just, you know, on the way here, I stopped by at this uh, Olima Vedanta retreat center. And I just happened to be 10, 15 minutes early. I happened to see this board and I just walked in and I meditated there. And I used to, and I haven't been there in like, you know, 15, 20 years. And a very significant experience, I had a very significant experience uh, with a monk there um, in my younger years. And so is it an accident that I happened to be just a few minutes early because I thought there would be traffic and it's Columbus Day <laughs> and there's no traffic and hence I can go into this place and reconnect with that part of myself? And how does that inform this moment? And do I, am I the architect of all of this? Is my effort and my will and my ego the architect of all of this? Um, and I just, I just don't, I don't think so. That's where I'm at. Maybe it's, maybe it's wrong. Maybe I'll get to a better version of that tomorrow. I'm open to that. But as for where I'm at right now, like it just feels like it just starts to feel like grace everywhere. And when you're receiving, as I feel like I am, even through your kind attention, um, and it's it's just all it's it's love. It's grace, and that propels me to pay it forward, right? Propels me to want to say, wow, I received. Um, how can I, you know, share with others? Mm. Whatever little I have, you know.
Well, let me just say, I, I am experiencing the grace and the power of what is between us right now. So I just want to acknowledge um, my gratitude for what's taking place right now. Um, you've mentioned that you've read in sacred texts and you started out in a Hindu tradition. As you understand yourself now, um, uh, I, I studied with a Hindu teacher, Swami Satchidananda, for many years. And um, at his ashram, where I spent some time uh, outside Charlottesville, Virginia, his Light of Truth Universal Shrine, um, his kind of motto was, truth is one, paths are many. And in the shrine, there was a light coming up from the center of the floor, which arced out into altars for all the great religious and spiritual traditions as well as those mm. unknown and so on. So his version of the Hindu tradition was very close to what Leibniz and Huxley called the perennial philosophy or the mm. perennial wisdom, that there's one truth and many yeah. paths to the truth. Now, that view uh, of spiritual life uh, is contested by wonderful people like uh, my friend, perhaps you know her well as well, Mary Evelyn Tucker, the uh, historian of religions at Yale, who um, was one of the people who kindly disabused me of the view that I thought for a long time, actually, that it was widely accepted that there was a single truth at the heart of all the great religious and spiritual traditions. And she said, not so. She said that might be true of uh, the Abrahamic faiths, but the Confucian tradition, for example, she felt was very different. So for a while, I was very deeply shocked by that because I had such a deep commitment to the view that there was one core truth. And then gradually over time, I came to think to myself, you know, I recognize that scholars of religion, sociologists of religion, whose work is to differentiate, may believe that there isn't one truth, that there are different truths. Um, but for myself, I choose to believe that there's one truth that uh, also recognized in Islam, that there are prophets to all the different traditions. And um, of course, they privilege Muhammad, but nonetheless, they alone among the Abrahamic faiths honor the prophets that are discovered in all the different traditions. So that by way of preface to asking you, coming originally from a Hindu tradition and then exposing yourself to different traditions, how do you hold the question of whether there is one truth in many paths or whether, as one teacher says, we all get lost in the same forest, or, you know. <laughs> how do you just hold the question of whether at the heart of spiritual life there is in any real sense a single light? You know, the Quakers say there is that of God in all of us, for example. How do you hold the question of whether there is a single light and a single core truth, or whether we just all get lost in the same forest. <laughs> the way the way I see it, um, I I like 
I like the Buddha's framing of emptiness, although emptiness is not how we would frame mm-hmm. as nothingness. It's more reality as it is without projection. Mm-hmm. And our mind is constantly projecting. And mm-hmm. then you have layers and layers upon those project- projections and addictions to those projections, which mm-hmm. is what makes us think, this is Michael. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, that's problematic. But I think that those who are able to see beyond that field of mind and to see the field of matter as it is, they would not have any need to talk about capital T truth um, because they're in it. And so I think by it's a translation error mm. from that which is, because for language, language is a technology of the mind. Mm-hmm. And so by definition, it cannot expose you to something which is beyond the mind. It cannot be used to describe the mind. As Lao Tzu says, the Tao which is spoken is not the eternal Tao. Mm -hmm. It cannot be. Um, And so in that sense, for me, I think what's most important is to try to at least have one foot in that world of not projecting, not using the mind to project, seeing things as they are. Um, And... And I say one foot there because I think that there is a bifurcation at some point um, between, and this is where I really appreciate the Buddhist framework, actually, of a bodhisattva, where they have this distinction between an arhant, which is somebody who is completely awakened, so they see things as they are, they're no longer projecting, and reality doesn't quite engage them in the same way, and then you have bodhisattvas who say that, yes, I do have one foot there, I see that, but out of compassion, I'm now going to work at this level. And at this level means if at my level I'm engaged, you know, I have so much, um, I'm so vested in certain ideas, in certain words, in certain, you know, sort of constructs, uh, then I will come and I will relate to you at that level. If I only spoke Hindi, we couldn't have this conversation. So a bodhisattva would say, let me learn how to speak Hindi so I can relate to you at that Hindi level to then support you to be awakened. Um, and, and so I, I think there is that bifurcation, but truth, the capital T truth, is fundamentally going to be a debatable idea because it's using technologies which are inherently in, 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 ill-equipped um, to handle that. So I think mm. a conversation on these things, uh, to the degree that it helps you and inspires you, um, is great, but it's going to be incomplete. No, that's, that's a beautiful answer. So clearly the Buddha's teachings have touched you deeply. Yeah. Um, would you say that there are other traditions other than your natal Hindu tradition and the Buddha's teachings that have also touched you deeply? Uh, a lot of traditions have, but I think, like, I, I, I look at someone like Jesus and I think about the compassion, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, forgive them, they know not what they do. Mm-hmm. Like, what, that's great compassion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I tend to parse things not in a box of religion per se, mm-hmm. uh, but more in, in the sense of virtue. Um, and I think there's great virtue uh, present in so many people in so many different ways, historically and present. I draw a lot from Gandhi. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I draw a lot of I see I, I draw a lot of inspiration from Gandhi, mm-hmm. um, and you look at a person like that. You know, in India there was a sage named Raman Maharishi, yeah. uh, who was this completely non-dual person. Mm-hmm. He was awakened. He just sat and was abiding in this great non-dual self. You know, one of the most respected uh, teachers probably of all time, and he lived at the same time as Gandhi. And here was Gandhi, who is completely, he worked in such a messy field, in the social field. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, he did all kinds of different experiments, and he was mm-hmm. so criticized and so mm-hmm. trivialized in so many different ways. But here was this man who said that, you know, it, before the Dandi March, the Salt March, that mm-hmm. became this iconic example for the world, um, he, Tagore was crossing through uh, the ashram and he asked him, he says, you know, the whole country is looking for your next move. What are you going to do? And here is Gandhi saying, I don't know, but you can be sure that I'm praying. You said Tagore. Tagore said, he's, Gandhi says right. this to Tagore. Right. And you're... You would think that he had access to all the think tanks in the world. He had access to whatever he wanted to do. Everyone's thinking he's scheming on this side, doing this, doing that. But he's actually praying. And he this man, praying. when he, he was such a man of prayer, not mm. to say he was perfect, and you can keep on debate. There's many things to debate about Gandhi. But such a man said that, you know, there were many people that wanted to assassinate him before Gordse finally put three bullets through him. And he says, go ahead, if you want to assassinate me. You know, he was very easy to find. Six mm-hmm. o'clock means prayer time. And he opened his arms to the assassin and said, Ram, Ram, right? Ram. I, 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 yeah. I don't know if he opened his arms per se, maybe, but that mm-hmm. could be debated. But, like, mm-hmm. you know, he certainly said, Ram, Ram, Ram. Mm-hmm. But his thing was, there were 18 people that had tried to assassinate him in the previous years. Mm-hmm. So it was not a shock that somebody would mm-hmm. come and put a bullet through. People around him were telling him, were telling him, look, this is not a safe time. We should take some of these safeguards. Mm-hmm. He says, my job is to bless. Mm-hmm. If, you're, if you're moved to put three bullets through me, joke's on you. I'm just going to bless. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so here, when Raman Maharshi is alive at the same time as mm-hmm. Gandhi... And this is a man who's completely non-dual. Right. He's not going to, you know, be like, oh, my God, this guy died. I'm going to miss him. They never actually even met in flesh. He starts crying all the way in South India, tearing up. Mm. And he was like that for three days. Mm. And so you look at a person like Gandhi and you say, what was his technology? How was he practicing? And through all his imperfect methods and imperfections, even, and he would say that don't turn me into a saintly person. You're just projecting. Um, how? Wh- what has to go on inside of him to be so courageous, so steadfast, so in his center, but yet not renouncing going to the Himalayas and saying, this is a delusional world. I don't really want any piece of it. He continues to practice in this dual space 
with all its imperfections. And to me, yeah. that takes a great amount of compassion. It does. Yeah. There's a wonderful quote from Gandhi. He was once asked how he always seemed to know what the British were going to do before they did it. <laughs> and he said, I know because I am that kind of scoundrel. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? That's great, yeah. I love that line. I love that That is line. a great line. Just, in other words, he... I mean, he'd been an attorney, right, in South Africa, dealing with all kinds of terrible stuff. He'd been to British schools and all that. And he understood the dance of power. He understood it. And not only did he understand it, he understood it deeply. Yeah. And therefore, like Martin Luther King, they could both be skillful in their nonviolence yeah. because they understood the dance of power in depth. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So that's that working in the dual world yeah. uh, where um, to be skillful yeah. uh, involves understanding how, the, how that world works. Yeah. yeah. And how do you hold the formless in the world of form? You know, this right, was exactly. a question that we just had a service-based retreat, and this was a question mm -hmm. uh, that was very present and named in, in such ways. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you hold the formless while, uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, engaging with form? And that's mm -hmm. intrinsically going to be, you know, uh, it's going to be rife with problems. <laughs> it will be rife with problems. Yeah. And, and that's okay, because your vow yeah. is to... Practice compassion in the face mm -hmm. of great, great suffering, if, if that's what you're called to do. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, I think I'm very clearly called to do that. I mm -hmm. actually meditate so that I can become a more compassionate person. Mm -hmm. I don't me I'm not moved to meditate so that I can find peace, uh, so I can be free from all the tensions or whatever. You know, it's my life, A, it's pretty good as is, but even if it wasn't, like I, I couldn't motivate myself uh, to just sit for that long uh, if it wasn't for compassion. So I'm wired in that way. Uh, I understand that not everybody is wired in the same way, and that's fine, but for me, this seems to be, uh, to be the truth. You've mentioned long meditations. Can you say anything about what kind of daily practice you've discovered works best for you? I, I would say that the daily practice that I do, I try to do that all the time, is small acts of kindness. And that doesn't sound very meditative, doesn't sound like a, mm -hmm. oh, oh, that's amazing, let me write that down, you know? No, no, <laughs> it's, it's very... It was the takeaway, small acts of kindness, you know? Mm -hmm. One guy came to me one time and he says, yeah, I want to leave a legacy behind, I've done all this in the world, what do you recommend I do? I said, do a small act of kindness, mm -hmm. and he was like, Okay, that's really sweet, but what do I really do? I said, no, pay toll for the car behind you every time. Mm -hmm. He was very affluent. And so I said, every time you cross the toll booth, like pay toll for the car behind you. And he was like, okay, that's really sweet, but what do I really do? And it's this thing. We, we, we take it for granted because we're so vested in the objects and our perceptions and in reality the way we think it is, is that we undermine how this simple thing of kindness, how this simple idea 
that it is not you and the other this moment when I'm kind to you, I'm actually going up against so much conditioning and putting a break on it and saying, it's not just me, it's not my ego, it's the other, I'm here to serve and then see what happens. And you're actually rejuvenated, it's regenerative, you wanna do another act of kindness. You never run out of love. The more you love, the more you want to love. And so it's this regenerative resource that we're all endowed with, but we, we just, we don't, we don't practice it, you know? And so in that sense, for me, that's a continual practice, you know? So if my wife were to say, like, you know, my wife, I, 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 can I say that's the self-flattering thing? Please, for yes, my, yes, yeah. My wife says she's, I'm the kindest uh, person she knows. Oh. And to me, what a gift that is. That's the greatest compliment. Yeah. Because here's a person that She has knows to live you. with you. She has to live with you. And she's right. known me since I was 18. Right. And so this is like, none of this stuff is new. None of this stuff is amazing. None of this. And she's a remarkably awakened human being. Tell us about your wife. Oh, I, that, that would take a long time. No, but yeah. just a bit. I, it's, I, my wife is one of the greatest gifts in my life. Um, Where did you meet? We met when I was 18. We had a common friend, and uh, she, she would always get in trouble, and she would go to two people for advice, and like, what do you think I should do? And I would say what I think I should do, and then she would go to my wife, and she said, what do you think? And she, she would, we would both end up saying the same things, and mm. so she's like, you guys got to meet. Mm. Uh, so she introduced you? She, so we met at her kind of a birthday birthday party, and then... We weren't, you know, and after a while we kind of met. But she was more of a monastic, uh, and I was as well. And so for many years we knew each other. We didn't come together. And then one fine day we're walking down the street, and we said, I think we need to get married today. And it caught us both off guard. And Who said that? You did or she we, did? Uh, I, I think we both had that intuition. Uh-huh. Um, and where were you walking down the street? In, in Mount Shasta. Hmm. Um, and yeah, and it's kind of, you know, so many surreal things happening around it. She comes from a very conservative Sikh family. Uh-huh. And her, it's this sort of this patriarchal family. Everyone's afraid of their grandfather. Hmm. And I went to meet the grandfather. And the grandfather, you know, first thing he says, everyone's afraid of him. He basically, for the last 10 plus years of his life, all he did was prayer, hmm. like all day. Hmm. Very devout person, a really well-respected elder hmm. in hmm. the Sikh community. Um, and everyone projected this conservativeness onto him, and he would never allow anyone in the family to marry outside the Sikh hmm. tradition. And and so here I was, you know. Hmm. and. And I'm like set up for this whole, like, you know, this World War Three, you know. And he looks at me, very kind eyes, first time I met him. He's like, you're on the right path to keep doing what you're doing. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Nipun Mehta and host Michael Lerner. And I was like, what? You know, uh, and, and, and a whole lot of other amazing things happen. And, but yeah, my wife has been there with me uh, every single thing, the way it's turned out, uh, all the 
service projects that we have started that I have started technically mm-hmm. she says that you have started I'm just you know mm-hmm. she's not as worldly as I am um, and she's been there and yeah it's uh, it's the most sacred thing and she's a very unique person um, she knows about deep surrender you know I don't know about that deep a surrender mm-hmm. uh, she can sing without knowing the next note she can draw without knowing the next stroke. Mm-hmm. Uh, she can move without knowing the next step. And I, I have met lots of amazing people, and lots of people that perhaps are even awakened. Um, and yeah, she's, uh, she's a very uh, mm-hmm. unique person. And I look at her and uh, even even yesterday, even this morning, I wake up and I, you know, I I just feel so grateful. And I'm mindful that I don't want to cling to the person. And I'll often, I mean, this doesn't sound right. I'll say it anyways. It's Michael, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, I, most people can't relate to it, but in the arc of my thing, you know, and even she probably can't relate to it, but I'll look at her and I'll, you know, I'll say, the thought that comes to my mind, I just have this internal system, maybe because I have a deeply held fear that what happens when this goes away, what happens, you know, and so I would, I would look at her and I would say, you know, if, if, if I end up living longer than her, I'll be at her funeral and I'll see her and, and I see her now and she might wake up today and she may not wake up later how does that affect how you hold that relationship? How do you hold that impermanence? And so for me, that's a very present, it's like a daily thing. Mm. And from that, I say, okay, how can I do acts of kindness? You know, how can I engage with this person? So this is one person to whom I never want to get in a tug of war with, mm. ideologically in any way. Like, you know, we, we're always doing this tug of war with reality. Mm-hmm. We're always superimposing always trying to freeze this frame which is so fluid so many things are happening we're always in community even if we're by ourselves and in that we bring all our attachments and you know and so a great practice for me to take kindness to the next level is you should always have one or two people in your lives where you say no tug of war you win every single time like in any conversation, and you know, I mean, you're married, you have thousands of decisions that you're making together. There's going to be so many different, you know, differences in opinions. And I have lived in a way where I'm saying with her, no tug of war. Hmm. Like if you genuinely have gratitude, just give up everything. Like you, sh- you ought to be able to do that to all life. I'm not, I, I don't have that kind of love yet, <laughs> hopefully someday. But it's like, man, if you can't practice here, uh, where else are you going to practice? And then to manifest it, you know, like right before I go out for my trips, I'll like, you know, she has to scold me. She's like, Nippon, make sure you don't clean the house before you go to the airport, you know, because <laughs> I want to leave it in the best possible way. Who knows? Maybe I don't see her again, you know. And so I'll always try to do a go above and beyond. She always tries to go above and beyond. And that virtuous cycle, mm. I look at it and I say, you know, can we create a world like that? Mm. Can I do that with others? Right? I don't want to take from you and you either want to, you know, but can, what does it mean for us to engage in that generous kind of a relationship? 
and what are the systems that don't cheapen our multi-dimensional relationship mm. into a singular transaction and if it's and if it's if it's so how do we move away from those transactions and how do we create those systems that allow us mm. to you know to return from singular transactions to multi-dimensional relationships to just this field of grace where transformation arises when the time ripens Mm. Um, so for me, all of that comes down to that practice of, you know, small acts of kindness, right? In every moment, in any moment that you're aware, like just do it. It sounds so simple. It doesn't take rocket science to study the Gita and the Quran and the Bible, right? Like it's like... Man. Well, to me, I mean, first of all, what you're saying is beautiful. And um, I had a conversation a few weeks ago with a guy named Al Nur Lada. Do you know him? He uh, lives in Costa Rica. He comes from um, uh, a Sufi family uh, in Vancouver, British Columbia. He lives, lives in Costa Rica. He started a group called The Rules, which is working on uh, deconstructing the rules of the global capitalist economy. That's uh, a very interesting man. And the commune that he lives in, in Costa Rica, is an anarchist commune. Mm -hmm. But why I bring this up is that he said an anarchist commune doesn't mean anarchy. He said an anarchist commune is based not on law but on etiquette. Mm. And I thought, what a beautiful word because um, my way of looking at our community at Commonweal is that we have three basic hopes uh, to be kind, to be conscious, and to be of service. Oh, yeah. I, I didn't know that. So kindness of heart, consciousness of mind, and dedication, service of the hands. Oh. And we're all given hearts, heads, and hands. And yeah. so in all traditions, you find this, you know, in the Gita, you have uh, bhakti yoga, of the heart, you have uh, yana yoga of wisdom, and you have karma yoga of dedication. Yes. So these are the three great yogas, and you find them again and again in all the traditions. Yeah. Um, but this sense of etiquette is very uh, parallel to what you're describing of, of small acts of kindness. So that it's, in other words, to be kind to people where I break down, where I lose it a lot, is um, I, I'm not good at the practice of etiquette. So, for example, it's something I don't like about myself, but I interrupt people when they're speaking, not because I want to, but because my mind has kind of gotten to where it's going, yeah. I think. Yeah, sure. So that's an example. But the rules of being polite and of going beyond politeness to etiquette, there is an ancient wisdom based in kindness that is honored badly or well, I think, by being polite and by practicing a high-quality etiquette. That's what I'm trying to say. 
And so your random acts, of, your small acts of kindness constantly kind of go to the heart of what lies behind politeness and etiquette. I guess that's what I was trying yeah. to, to bring I, I, I feel like I, I love anarchists uh, yeah. in many ways because yeah. uh, it can be a framework to help you get beyond the mind mm-hmm. uh, and the technologies of the mind. Right. But etiquette still feels like there's an inner coercion. Uh, that's true, isn't it? To have yeah. a certain, I should not interrupt. Right. Uh, and hence, I won't interrupt. Mm-hmm. If you have a strong enough prefrontal cortex, then you will be able to tame your amygdala down and, mm-hmm. and do that. But I feel like there's so many layers beyond that where actually you feel into the interconnection with other people. Um, and as you do, you realize that like I don't need any inner or outer coercion. Uh, inner coercion would be an etiquette, and you can have many inner frameworks um, that get you to that. Uh, and outer coercion would be rules, right? Mm-hmm. But if I'm actually, I don't need any of that for my left hand to cooperate with my right hand because I have a clear understanding of this body. And if I'm able to have that clear understanding with, you know, w- with things outside of me as well, seemingly outside of me, mm-hmm. uh, then I think it becomes very natural. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yet I have seen very strong people uh, that, very aw- awakened people who, whose translation of that awakening in uh, dual world is lacking of compassion. So I don't think that all awakenings mm-hmm. are made equal. No, I agree um, with that. And I think there's folks who are more compassionate. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the Buddha was sort of the epitome of that kind of compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what it, that was his great contribution also. Let's take at least one, if not more, of, of Service Spaces projects. Um, yeah, uh, we've, been, we've been going in a whole different direction. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> but I mean, I love it, but I want to come back to the, ground. the, the real world in which yes. you actually work. But one of the ones that um, uh, I'm perhaps more familiar with is the Karma Kitchen restaurants. What are the Karma Kitchen restaurants? Uh, Karma Kitchen is, is actually a pop-up restaurant mm-hmm. where you walk. In some places, it's not a pop-up. It's seven days a week. But it's, um, it's a pop-up. Think of it as a pop-up restaurant. A bunch of us get together mm-hmm. and we say, we love this idea of engaging with each other in mm-hmm. a deep way. Uh, but how do we bring it in a systemic way? So I love small acts of kindness. Mm-hmm. And we do them, but as they're scattered, they are then overshadowed by the narratives of, you know, of transaction and, and greed. Um, and so we walk into a restaurant and uh, it's run by volunteers, but the guest walks in and your check uh, reads zero at the end of your meal. Everything else is the same. Um, instead of staff, it's volunteers running it. But the core difference is that your check at the end of the meal reads zero not because it's free, but because somebody before you paid for you and you get to pay forward for people after you. Mm-hmm. And so you're trusted to do a kind act mm-hmm. in a very specific way with financial currency. Mm-hmm. But will you be kind or will you not be kind? Mm-hmm. And so you go from direct reciprocity, which is transaction, which is what our whole world is built on. And when things break down, we tend to think, 
that we need to make it even more transactional. We're not efficient enough with our transactions. And so that's how you bring in your McKinsey consultants and you say, let's, let's get it even more transactional. But this is actually going in a different direction. So from direct reciprocity, it is saying, what happens if I take care of you? You don't take care of me back. You take care of somebody else. That somebody else takes care of this person. And then what goes around comes around to me. So is there one in Berkeley? There, there, was, there was one in Berkeley for seven years. Right now it's on a hiatus. It's in 23 places around the world. Oh, really? Um, so and, they pop up. Some of them last over periods of yeah. time. And, and its whole purpose is actually to help us see that right. we can all engage with each other in this way. And what is KarmaTube? KarmaTube is a website. We started this project called Daily Good maybe mm -hmm. over 20 years ago. Maybe we start with Karma Daily Good. Daily, Daily Good, Good essentially sends out one bit of email every yeah. day. That's mm -hmm. good news, positive news. Yeah. But not like the cheesy good news, but something that arrives has this transformative mm -hmm. uh, element to it. Uh, and then we realized when YouTube launched, we said, you know, we should create a curated version of videos, uh, which was Karma 2. But then we combine each video with like three actions that people can take. And then people can pledge and say, oh, I saw this. This inspired me. I'd love to do this action. And then those who pledge sometimes will get together and it will create a ripple effect. So we have many such content portals. So, and you, you touch many, many, many people. Uh, how is service space in any sense structured? I mean, how, how does it work? <laughs> uh, you do these uh, wonderful uh, conversations and interviews also that you distribute yeah. through a service space. How does the whole thing work? I mean, I understand it's all volunteer, but Anything to work and do these projects needs some kind of structure. What, what is the structure of service better? Well, it's, it has different structures for different projects, and there's right. lots of projects. So the way I usually respond to this, I would say what's most important, when you look at a field, mm. if it's a monoculture field, mm -hmm. and somebody says, what are you growing on your field? Mm -hmm. It's easy to say, this is an apple farm. Mm -hmm. Right? We grow apples. I get it. That's great. When I want apples, I'll come to you. And that's an easy answer. Uh, if you have a polyculture field mm -hmm. where you have many things interacting with many things, it becomes a lot harder. Because mm -hmm. you do have apples, but you're not primarily an apple farm. Mm -hmm. right? You also may have plums. You also may have pears. You also may have vegetables. You also may have so many other things. Mm -hmm. um, and then if you're a sort of permaculture farm, which is like polyculture to the max mm -hmm. and extreme, uh, then it's almost like a silly question. Like nobody would go to Fukuoka, who's the grandfather of permaculture, and say, what are you growing here? If you do, then you're just, you clearly don't know anything about mm -hmm. the farm. Um, and that's fine. Many people did. And maybe many people also thought that, oh, he's just not smart enough to actually package it and message it so he can reach the people, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so in some sense, uh, we're on the Fukuoka end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. right? There's so many projects. There's so many things. And what Fukuoka would say is, look, I have these, I, he called it do-nothing farming, which doesn't mean doing nothing, which means doing the least amount so nature can grow the trees uh, and grow the fruits and, and nourish us. Right? So what does it mean to do social permaculture? 
So we have a field where many parts are interacting with many parts. It's touching millions of lives every month. And so it's this giant field and it's social permaculture. So it looks very different than physical permaculture uh, because we are much more complex. Our minds are much more complex. But what is it that nourishes this, this ecosystem? What makes it work? And what makes it work is not rules or not even etiquette. It's even subtler than that. It's, it's our intrinsic propensity to care, to love, to give. That you need a strong marketing team and a strong PR team, a strong messaging team to teach people to love Coca-Cola. You don't need that to teach people to love because they are wired to give. Even when they're 18 months old, there's so much research that shows you that we have this propensity to be related, to give, to care for each other. So that at its core is this intrinsic motivation and how can that regenerative intrinsic motivation stay that way? So we started as a lemonade stand, nothing noteworthy about it, right? Like what's the big deal? We see lemonade stands everywhere. So you guys are doing that instead of lemonade, you're doing that with, I'm not looking this side as much because I feel like the camera is here, but hello. Um, you look at a lemonade stand and you say, yeah, these guys are, you know, building websites for nonprofits. What's the big deal? That's sweet. That's cute. What's remarkable is if you can stay a lemonade stand after 20 years of lemonade stands, which is what the service-based field is. And then you realize that one of the three things, one of the three M's that I've recently started to talk about is that what does it mean to not lead with the military not lead with the markets and not lead with media. And if you look at the great social change agents that have, or at least the ones that I, uh, I am inspired by, like Gandhi, they never led with market. Military is government, power, right? Markets is money, transaction. And media is this broadcast. So how do you, you can't be allergic to these things, but how do you compost it? How do you take that government power and not lead with it, right? Like when you go to Fukuoka's farm, you should be talking about mangoes, right? Not the compost. You, it's understood that there's a lot of compost. So I think we have to learn how to compost it. I think that the problem is that we oftentimes have these things as the fruits and this is all that we talk about. So what does it mean to compost power, to go from leadership uh, to laddership is something we talk about. What does it mean to compost the markets, to go from financial capital to alternate forms of capital? What does it mean to compost, you know, media, mass media, which is fame, from, you know, broadcast to what we think of as deep cast? So post Gandhi in, in India, there, his successor was a guy named Vinoba Bhave. And they asked him, he walked village to village. It's remarkable, unprecedented in human history. He would go to a village and he would ask the rich landowners that if you had five kids, what would you do with your land? He says, I would distribute it to the five. He says, would you adopt me as your sixth son? And I don't want one sixth of your land. You give it to your brother over there. Five million acres was donated. Five million acres. I mean, you know we've fought wars for decades over far smaller pieces of land. And this guy, Vinoba, when you asked him 
He says, you know, you, should, you can do so much. The whole country's at your disposal. Really smart guy. He knew over 20 languages. He walked village to village, did all kinds of different programs. And he says, if you had a good marketing team. This was in the UK or in this India? This is in India. In India. In India. Right. And if you had a good marketing team, you know, you could like do so much more. And he says, the wind will carry my message. He says, the, the rivers are carrying this message of love. He says, everything is alive with this thing. We don't, you know, so what he was talking about is the shift from broadcasting to what we think of as deep casting. Hmm. That there is value to broadcasting, sure, but we can't forget about deep cast. There is value to transaction. Many things are helpful to be dealt with in a transactional way. That can't be the only thing. You have to go to other forms of capital. There is value to some sort of interventions, right, that are, that are coercive, but you can't just like take that and be, have that be the only hammer you have. You have to learn how to be relational and lead with, uh, with in that kind of a field. So in the, in the larger service space field, there's lots of parts, they're interacting with each other, and there's lots of fruits, and people are benefiting from them in so many different ways, but that's not the real story. Right? The real story is it doesn't lead with money, power, or fame. Hmm. And you'd be hard-pressed to go around the world and ask the leaders, because the leaders are, are folks who have, you know, who, are, who have done really well. Who are the influencers in these three categories? So you ask them, tell me of an example of something that started a, you know, a lemonade stand story that sustained itself and touched millions of lives over 20 years. No clue, right? Because we, A, we tend to trivialize them, and, and because we tend to trivialize them, all the actors in that lemonade stand mm -hmm. end up, like, you know, being co-opted by these other forces. And so you never get, to, and that's fine. It's not like these forces are evil, right? It's okay. It serves its purpose. But we never get to learn what happens, what gets unlocked, right? What emerges gets unlocked if you actually trust in those intrinsic motivations, if you trust in that deep casting, if you trust and circulate uh, multiple forms of capital. And that's what service space has become. This live ecosystem with its many projects, uh, with its impact, but this live ecosystem that has an entirely different kind of intelligence. Now, I agree with that, and it's most extraordinary. You, we were once having a conversation about, you know, as you know, Commonweal, like Service Space, has several dozen different projects, but a lot of our staff are paid, not volunteers, and your, your community is volunteer. And you said something to me very beautiful that stayed with me ever since. You said, building a volunteer system takes longer but it lasts longer. Yeah. And I think that's true. Uh, um, and uh, it's something I reflect on a lot. I mean, part of Commonweal, an important part, is volunteer. Uh, but that's something that you said that is, has stayed with me. We were walking just before we uh, started our conversation. And I talked to you about a new iteration of work that we've been doing for 40 years on resilience. Yeah. And we were both taking in, I think, a shared analysis that the 
world and humanity is going through an unprecedentedly difficult passage uh, where one way of thinking of it is that there are perhaps two dozen different uh, environmental, social, technological, global stressors, and everybody tries to work on climate change or poverty or all the different silo issues, but very few people are looking at the whole enchilada of the, the perfect storm of how all these different stressors are affecting both the biosphere and humanity. And it's as though nature and humanity are entering a, a, a funnel yeah. where it's very likely, we know already, that much less of either nature or humanity will come out the other end. Yeah. And so the question I think we're both asking, I certainly am asking, but I would want you to speak for yourself, is how do we live our way into this unknown, mysterious place yeah. with skill and compassion? Yeah. What are your thoughts? I, I think that's a really important question, first of all. Um, and I have thoughts on it. I, I, I don't know if they're sufficient or adequate, but I think that's a really important question to hold. Uh, and I think we need more people holding that question. Mm -hmm. So that's how I would first respond. And I think the problems are way more subversive than we actually think. Um, why? especially with technology. I come from the technology world. So the subversive ways in which technology is working that we don't realize, we think that cell phones are here and the apps are kind of helping us connect with each other, which they are at a certain level. But we don't realize that they're, you know, we are swiping 2,500 times a day to refresh that we are literally becoming like those rats on their little treadmill. And you say, how and why is this just an accident? It's not at all an accident. Right? These are the market incentives that this is where it's taking us. And then you say, okay, that's here. Where is that going? And you, you, you see the design principles. This is what I always get to, right? The, so Washington Post did this story couple weeks ago on, it says, I think the title of it was, what was it? I forget the exact title. It says, hey, Alexa, uh, can you help me talk to my dad? I mean, it was like asking a question to my deceased dad. So the way that this, these technologies, and they talked about many such companies that are doing this, is where instead of me sending a text to you directly, it would go through a machine. And that when you pass away, I can say, Hey, uh, Alexa, can you tell me what Michael would say to this? Or, I, or not even Alexa, then I just can pretend like I'm in a conversation with you. Um, and so we're designing for permanence instead of embracing flow and impermanence and trusting in the intelligence of that emergence. So that transaction is actually, we think we've hit the limits. But we're actually, you can go way farther, way deeper. There's a whole conversation in this multi-billion dollar funded university called Singularity that are having conversations on that end of the spectrum. And they're creating business models and innovations of what happens when these things sort of, and, and there's a, 
that lens, which is just a materialistic lens, which doesn't include the inner lens and the inner resources, and the reason why it doesn't is because we've cheapened it, that makes all these things even more pressing. That if we are now looking to get market share, mind share, of a 10 to 12 year old in ways that they don't even understand. I mean, we always marketed Ronald McDonald to the two year olds, right? They got that, right? But now it's like way deeper in our psyches. And you want these actors to sort of, you know, be having, then you're gonna compare them. You're treating them as these transactional agents. And then the best that they'll be able to do is just deliver content and then you compare them to a robot and you say, wow, that's just a lesser form of life, right? Like Elon Musk said that maybe biological life is just the bootloader, right? Sometimes you, you start up your system with a disk, right? Back in those days, you had a bootloader. And, but then the bootloader is done, like you don't have any use for it. Uh, so maybe, and that's a view, that maybe biological life is just low life and that maybe we created all these problems and this is the best we we're able to do. So we just need smarter machines, uh, augmented human beings, um, and that's... So there's a whole worldview around this and that we think we've hit the limits. We have not. Like, it can get way... You know, there's this... And so I think about that and I say, well, how can you... How can you presence alternatives? Not to demonize this, but to say that maybe this works in some cases, but actually, guess what? Our bodies are antennas. Our bodies are not just biological you know, machines, they're antennas for a whole lot more. And if we tune into that and we connect with each other who are tuned into that, you create a different kind of emergent intelligence. That intelligence can be compassionate. It can drive innovation in a very different way. That's an intelligence that we have to hold on the spectrum. And right now that narrative is just not there because we're just not tuned into it because we've been swallowed by the three M's. Every single conversation with innovators that you would go to, you're like, they don't know this kind of a thing. So how do we presence this? Uh, I, I, I think it's, uh, to me, that becomes an important part of the resilience conversation. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Nipun Mehta and host Michael Lerner. Hmm. That resilience in the field of matter, because really the, uh, the best solutions for that, if that's the scope of your conversation, then it's going to be a technological solution because those are leveraged. And so if you're going in and you're saying, I want the highest leverage, quickest thing uh, to kind of sort of come in and address this, pro this great suffering that we're going to have, my sense is you're going to deepen that suffering. So how do you think outside of that frame? Which means asking the question of what's the biggest, what's the fastest, you know, what's the most, you know, amazing shiny object that you can create around it. They're all kind of, by my lens, inappropriate questions. They're legitimate questions because, hey, my house is burning, I need to deal with it. We do need to address the relief question, but they're not coming even remotely close to the cure. And in fact, in the name of relief, we're creating compounding the problems, which will require even more relief, which will then cheapen the re relief because you have lesser time, you need to go at bigger scale, you need to do, you know. 
And in this dialogue, in this incredible momentum of even good people, good individual actors acting out of compassion, but they've just been programmed and conditioned in this, in this way to just say, yeah, hey, I'm really smart and I'm going to dominate control and I'm going to fix these systems to how do you actually get them to go from the known to the unknown, right? To actually trust not just in what they can deduce, but in the intelligence of emergence. Uh, And that's an entirely different frame. Um, And I think we have to, if my hope comes from, I think think we always, over a long arc, we are, you know, I I think we will go there. Uh, But my hope would be that we can bring that into the conversation. And I'm doing my bit to do mm-hmm. to sort of bring it into these places and say, hey, guess what? You know, maybe there's like different ideas, possibilities, maybe something to try. You know, your three M's of military, market, and media. It struck me the other morning with a force that hadn't quite struck me before, that every human invention will be tried out as a weapon as a business or as a technology, every single, it will be screened for its potential to be weaponized, to be made money with, or to be a technology for either weaponization or the market. Um, And it's really something because we then continue this ferocious effort to invent. And it just gets co-opted by these and things. And it just yeah. gets co-opted by the three M's. Yeah. Yeah. Before we do a close, I just want to open the space to see if anybody has a question or a reflection you'd like to share with us. And thank you for blessing us with yeah. your presence. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I've been for the last few years. Could you speak up a little bit? talking about uh, with people all over the world about universal basic income and the idea that uh, our capitalist society is kind of consuming itself and the fact that we're running out of disposable income as we speak because of the nature of the way we are. And the idea of it actually coming now directly from the central banks, for example, rather through via taxation. And then what would one do if one did not have to work. Rather, not pointless work, as, a, as a Vonnegut pointed out, and a player piano. But is there the, you know, when you drop the tinker toy that is your mind that you've assembled through traumatic experiences and that you use to hold, to interact with other people, then you can tune into a different type of world. Like, I mean, we talk about kindness, but if all the ants and bugs and spiders stopped eating one another, say they decided to become vegan, the ecosystem would implode. Those are the kinds of things that you got to get down into, but I think what I'm hearing from you is that type of kindness for the large swath of people would be much more available from a universal basic income point of view because all of us have the luxury to be here on a you know Monday afternoon, but many people don't. I just wondered what your thoughts were on that type of transformation process and what you see happening in California in particular, since you live, yeah. we both yeah. attended. And, and, and there, are, there are candidates that uh, in this election that are supporting UBI. Um, 
you know, my sense is that Yuval Noah Harari uh, is author of many best-selling books like Sapiens and Homo Deus. Uh, he talks about this idea of a useless class. Um, and he says that you're going to have augmented human beings unequally uh, augmented because of the power and privilege in this world. And as a result, you are now just going to have a useless class in which I think, so you, we will probably start to see more of UBI kinds of initiatives to support that. But I think it'll be just a Band-Aid to, uh, to this larger discrepancy um, of you know, a useless class and a privileged class. Um, and I think technology is just a lever to actually create more and, you know, to create this broader distinction. So, yeah, at, at some level of relief, I think that's helpful, but I, I don't think it's empowering. I don't, I don't know if that I would uh, call that a, a deep empowerment. Um, and I think we need to think much more deeply about uh, empowering communities, uh, empowering people, and what that empowerment looks like. There's so many schools of thought around what that empowerment looks like. And for me, kindness, right? There's many people who criticize kindness, let alone at the level of biosphere and ants and all. There's many people who will say, many activists, many of my good friends even, I mean, that even if we disagree, we're still good friends. Um, they will say, well, this is just a pacifier for the status quo. That if you are kind, it's like, you know, here we are, it's like a nice marine thing to do, then you can feel good about yourself and disconnect yourself from the suffering in the world. And so it's, but if you break that line of thinking down, you say, I, I, was, I was just in Bakersfield with Arun Gandhi, the grandson of Gandhi, uh, fifth grandson, and there were people outside, you know, Bakersfield has the largest, uh, I think we were talking about it in an email, um, school district that allows guns. And it's like, you know, the biggest sort of, uh, conservative sort of community, but we, we, and, and this question came up there too, that yeah, if I'm not dissatisfied, if I'm not suffering, then I will not be moved to action and to service. And, and there's a certain kind of logic to that, right? That if you're not suffering enough, then you're just not gonna do that. That's not my logic. Yeah. You know, so I believe that kindness is a great way to empower yourself and empower other people. I think ants would be very kind. I don't. I think it's an unknown uh, about what would happen uh, in the world if there was no, uh, you know, pr prey and prayer. But at the same time, yeah, it's there everywhere, right? Like it's a, it's there. Yeah. Uh, so all nature has this kind of hierarchy, even. Uh, all nature has this kind of suffering. Um, so there is this great suffering, but I think that becomes to me, so you go from UBI and you unpack all of these things, but to me it becomes a fundamentally spiritual question. I, for one, from my own experience, I feel the suffering of others. I want to respond to it, but I don't want to solve it and I have no timeline. I'll do it for, I think suffering will exist for infinity and I think so will compassion, and I'm willing to ride the wave, that infinity sign of suffering and compassion. And trying to shape a world where suffering doesn't increase more than is necessary. Right? I, I, I don't even need to have that affirmation for myself, mm, okay. because I just don't know, yeah. and I don't need to know. 
that I, I do like to think that, yes, I'm, you know, I'm talking about all these things and I do feel like this needs to be in balance. But you do have, you do have a deep techno-social political analysis that you carry. <laughs> I do, I With do. no ego, but you carry it. And so the, the point I'm making is that when you quote Harari about the bifurcation of humanity into the technologically, you know, enhanced elites and the and the unenhanced useless class, you clearly, I think it's fair to say, that you would prefer that that bifurcation not be, um, you would pr probably prefer that that bifurcation not be um, attempted or, or done? Yeah, I, I mean, you, yeah, yes. You, you would prefer not? I, I would love to alleviate suffering. Yeah, and therefore... That's a good example because you said that you don't even need to believe that we should try to alleviate but structural I, suffering. But I think my capacity to stay open-hearted in the presence of great suffering is inversely proportional to my wanting a certain outcome. No, I understand that. Because otherwise you're just not going to last for yeah. like let's say you want to do this for uh, forever. Yeah. Uh you're because you'll be so distraught, right? To the degree that you're vested in this. And so you look at that and you say, if you're not vested, how can you motivate yourself? And I'm like, look, I work like crazy, you know, and I have done it for 20 years. I've done it without being paid for anything. And and I'm still smiling. And so you look at that and you say, How, what motivates you? And I'm like, yeah, I think this is, I, I think there is a well of this kind of motivation that we're yeah. unaccustomed to. We think that you're just going to be lazy or you need fear to motivate you. You need to suffer so that, you know, you can go out and change the systems. Uh, and A, I'm not sure that's the only motivation. B, even if you go out and try to change the systems, I mean, so many great sages have lived. Has suffering gone away? And if it hasn't, then how do you make sure it doesn't, like, are you a fatalistic kind of a guy that is like, yeah. and I'm not. And, and so it's this paradox where I don't feel like I need motivation, I'm, and yet I'm motivated. I don't need a destination to be motivated. I don't need these impulses, these sensations inside of me arising as fear or any other thing to be motivated, yet I'm motivated. No, that's beautiful. I, I take a slightly different tack, which is I do uh, try to support social and environmental and technological changes that may or may not work out, but I carry with full effort a detachment. Yeah. So I'm not disappointed. So for example, you know, we've worked for 40 years on chemical policy reform in the United States, yeah. just as an example. And here we have a president who's just come in and destroyed it all. But I'm not particularly distraught. Yeah. It's like we tried that. But on the other hand, we've worked for 40 years on uh, juvenile justice reform and youth prison reform, and we reduced the youth prison population of California by 90%. And that has held, right? Mm. And we also played a big role in rewriting the laws governing California's fisheries. And that seems to be holding. So what I'm saying is that there may be a middle ground between 
your path, which I love, and the path of trying to do things which may or may not work out and may turn out to be totally counterproductive of what you intended them to be. But nonetheless, you make an effort, a skillful effort with full effort in that direction. And then if it turns out otherwise, so be it. You don't let it destroy you. I, I agree with that fully, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think the maybe it's just semantics of like mm. what is full effort. I think your capacity to do full effort mm-hmm. is inverse is directly proportional to your detachment. No, I agree with that. So, I totally agree with that. And, and so, in some sense, yes, you yeah. you do it, and you have this aspiration, and you yeah. try. You did it for forty years; it stuck, yeah. or you did it for forty years, and it didn't stick. You're still going to keep doing another forty Absolutely. years, you know, and well, another thousand years. Yeah, if you're exactly, yeah. exactly. And and that that that's sort of how I'm looking at this. You know, Angelus Arians for beautiful laws for spiritual life. It was show up, pay attention, tell the truth, and don't be attached to the outcome. So there yeah, you are. Yeah. So as we we close. Um, is there anything we haven't talked about or anything that you would like to bring into this wonderful conversation, which I'm so grateful for, that just you'd like to close with? I'm grateful mm. for you. Mm. I like to wish, uh, say that. I mean, I've been uh, watching your work. I've been the beneficiary mm. of your work in so many different ways. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I think the most, I, I, I remember we had a call where I was interviewing you many years ago mm-hmm. and I'd asked you something about you were doing these cancer circles mm-hmm. and you'd done so many and I asked you, you know, where's it going and, or where, what has been the arc and where is it going? And, and you said something so beautiful. It's like, it's gotten smaller mm-hmm. as we have grown. Mm-hmm. And that to me is a great indication of someone who is working in a multidimensional way. Mm-hmm. Uh, because small and big is sort of irrelevant. You know, like you, we tend to put more value in the big, uh, in the scale, in the speed. Um, but, you know, you, you have always honored that depth. You have always worked in a multidimensional mm-hmm. way. Uh, and like I said in the email earlier today, I'm here just to get your blessings, you know. Mm. Uh, and and I, I'm not just saying that um, because I, I really respect the way. It's not what you do. It's not how much you've done, mm. but it's who you're becoming by what you do. Mm. Uh, and I, in that sense, I think uh, you're an elder. Uh, and I hope uh, that you continue to bless all so many of us that are asking some of these messy, hard questions uh, as it pertains to suffering. So thank you. Well, you're so kind to um, experience our collective work in that way. And um, for my part, I am stunned and grateful uh, for the global impact of your work. And I'm honored to have contributed to it in a small way. So... um, My hope for both of us is of many years of further service. (laughs) To infinity. (laughs) I'd like to say that for many years, I've been coming to as many of Michael's interviews as possible. I find them, because of who Michael is, 
and the dedication with which he studies everything yeah. that people have written or done and the heartfelt, deep, honest, self-searching way he asks questions without ego, mm. revealing himself so much and his deep questions that haven't been resolved. I find all of these events so moving, almost like a, a happening or something. It's, it's yeah. a, a level of interaction that's very rare, especially in the world of texting. And yeah. Even talking has become rare, but the depth that Michael brings to yeah. these interviews yeah, yeah. And, the, and the search for truth yeah. instead of promoting this or that, I find very moving. Absolutely. But I would have so much to say to be part of this discussion that it wouldn't be a, a question as much as a, a dialogue. So I can't even begin to interact with what occurred. I can only say I appreciate my oh. and how he handles the new school, which is his passion. Yeah. And it's the most important thing in town for me in terms of mental, yeah. spiritual Thank you, dear one. Absolutely. Thank you all for coming. And Nipun yeah. Meda, thank you for being with us at the New School. Pleasure, pleasure. Yeah. It's an honor and it's a blessing. Yeah. With all of you. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Nipun Meta and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.